when I think about pride and boasting, I think of Jesus' 12 disciples. These guys argued an awful lot, as young men tend to do, but it's, it's funny to look at it and see that they argued over who was the greatest. Their argument amounted to, I'm better than you. No, you're not. I'm better than you. These were not apostolic arguments, but that's what they were fighting about. And in that group, Simon Peter really stands out as the hothead, doesn't he? We look at him in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, where Jesus says, you're all going to abandon me tonight. And Peter goes, not me. All these other guys, they might abandon you, but I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter couldn't even take that moment from the Lord. The thought of him abandoning Jesus was just unthinkable to him. And, and we like that in one sense. You should have that attitude. But Peter had an overinflated sense of himself. And we also tend to think rather highly of ourselves, don't we? And it's, it's not the same for everybody. You know, I, I grew up and I was, a, I think, a pretty well-rounded person when I was in high school. And I had friends that were the athletic guys. We liked football. We liked baseball. And we talked about that. And I also had some friends that were much more into video games and TV and pop culture and things like that. And each group thought they were better than the other one. And it was funny because I used to make fun of my nerd friends because they would say, those guys are just all full of themselves and they're, you know, the, the jocks just think they're better than everybody. I'm like, yeah, so do you. So do you in your own domain, right? And they, well, they're just so aggressive and competitive. And I'm like, yeah, I've heard you play Halo. I, I know how it goes. It's the same thing. We, we resent the idea of somebody getting a free gift or we resent the idea of a free ride. If they're not doing anything, they shouldn't be given anything. You get nothing for nothing. I mean, look at me. That's where it comes back to, right? Look at me. I work hard. I put, I put effort into everything. I've earned everything that I've got. And I'm not putting that down so much because there is some good to that. But we get like Peter and we get an overinflated sense of ourselves. Because on the night of the crucifixion, Peter denied Jesus Christ three times. Couldn't even maintain his testimony before a little girl. The Bible says he cussed her out and told her to go away. And in Luke twenty two sixty two, 62, after that rooster crowed, it said Peter went away and wept bitterly. Here's the truth. We're not good enough on our own. Your efforts, as remarkable and admirable as they might be, are not enough to save you. And you need God's grace. And when you understand that, that's a blow to your pride. Because you begin to realize all this that I've done, that I'm so proud of, is not enough to save me. And this is where the Jews in Rome, who Paul's writing to, were, were at this point. They were reeling because Paul had just told them that God was welcoming the Gentiles freely. And they couldn't handle that because their whole identity and self-esteem and self-worth was wrapped up in the fact that we're not like them. And God comes in and says, I'm going to save you both the same way. And you can feel helpless when you realize that your efforts in any domain, are not enough to give you any kind of advantage before God? You can say, well, what's the point of it all? There's that helpless feeling. But in fact, it's a surer foundation to rely on grace and not your own works. And not only that, but Paul is going to quote David here and say, not only is this a salvation matter, but you will be happier, happier, when you put your faith in Christ rather than relying on yourself. And that's a remarkable thing. And that's maybe something that, well, I'm not interested in being happy. I just want to be right. Well, the Lord wants you to be happy. Amen. Amen. 
So let's look at these verses. We'll start by looking at the first three. We'll go about a paragraph at a time here. Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now let's remember where we just came from, because these these chapter breaks were added later. The last thing Paul had just said was that salvation by faith, there are five things that are important to know. Number one, it excludes boasting. Nobody gets to boast before God. Number two, it's apart from the law. It's not through the law. Number three, that God is God of the Gentiles and the Jews. Number four, that God justifies the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And number five, that this salvation by faith actually upholds the law. Now, this would have invited confusion from these Jewish Christians. Rome was a a city that had Jews and Gentiles together, and later on, Paul is going to address this tension between them, and and even outrage from them. You're telling me that we're saved apart from the law, and and that God is their God too? This guy that was worshiping Apollo and Zeus five minutes ago? That God's going to justify somebody who's not been circumcised as God commanded us? And you're going to also tell me that that upholds the law, even though you've just shattered my entire opinion of what the law meant? And so Paul is is going to very kindly and graciously walk them through this. He just said, we uphold the law. So he's going to take some time to argue from the Old Testament to explain how that is. And he starts with Abraham. And we're going to see in a minute, I'm going to quote from John, where the Jews would immediately default back in this day to Abraham when there was any question about their status before God. So Paul's going to start with Abraham. Now, you all know who this is. This is Abraham from the book of Genesis, starting chapter 12, I believe, down to chapter 27. He's the main guy. He's the one that God called to leave his father, leave his mother, leave his home, to go to the promised land. And God said, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you blessing, and I'm going to give you many descendants. Markers of status and wealth in this time, and in this time today as well, but not maybe to that extent. But he gets to the promised land, he lives life as a sojourner, he never possesses any land except for the place he buys for his own burial ground. And he never has a child. He's 75, 85, 95, and he still has not had the son that God has promised him. But we see these stories, how Abraham grows. God eventually provides the son Isaac. And Abraham is even willing to offer Isaac to the Lord because he trusts that God is going to supply him back. So if anybody in Scripture was righteous before God, was accepted before God, it was Abraham. Because God said it over and over again. So this whole conversation is about who is right before God. Well, Abraham was, so let's talk about him. Because how did he become right before God? This is a very important question for us to ask. Paul says, if it was by his works, he has something to boast about. And this idea of boasting continues through here that this was a matter of pride for them. That you could boast and look at what you've done and say, look what I've accomplished And this is indeed how the Jews understood Abraham at this time in history. There are quotes from Maccabees and other Jewish traditional literature where it said that Abraham was perfect and never sinned. 
There are passages that said Abraham kept the law completely even before it had been given. And that extends to never eating bacon and having tassels on his robes and all those sorts of things. There's a place that says Abraham's righteous works were counted to him as righteousness. That was their fallback, that this guy was able to be right before God, and he's our forefather, therefore we're able to to do the same. In John chapter 8, they're talking to Jesus, and and Jesus is rebuking them for not accepting him. And they they said in John 8, 39, Abraham is our father. It's like, mic drop, buddy. Like, you can say whatever you want. Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. In fact, Jesus will go on to say, your father is the devil, not Abraham. But what do I get from that passage? We get that the Jews put a lot of stock in being descended from Abraham and believing that they could imitate what Abraham had done. And in a sense, Jesus is affirming that and saying, you ought to be like Abraham. But here's the thing. When you go back and look at his story, and we studied it not long ago in the book of Genesis, Abraham was not exactly a perfect example, was he? First of all, he had been a worshiper, we think, of the moon when he lived in Ur, and then later in the city Haran. That was the big cult in the city, was worshiping the moon goddess. And Abraham was was worshiping those gods. Joshua tells us about how he left uh, those gods as well as his land. So he had been an idolater, but he listened. But he didn't fully leave his family. In fact, he he was supposed to leave his father. He took his dad with him halfway to Haran until dad died, and then he went. Right? It's much easier to leave your family when dad's not around to get mad at you for it, right? He took his, his nephew Lot with him, which he wasn't supposed to do. That caused trouble for him, ended up dividing the promised land in half that God wanted to give him. He lied about his wife twice, once in Egypt and once in the, the Philistine cities, where his wife, who was an old woman but was a very beautiful woman, they said, is that, is that your wife? No, that's my sister, because he's afraid they were going to kill him and take his wife from him. But they took his wife anyway. And so his wife was twice taken into the harem of a foreign king because he lied and was afraid. Not only that, when he and his wife grew impatient for a son being born, they together came up with this idea, which was legal at the time, but y'all know legal doesn't always mean moral, don't you? He had a child with his slave, Hagar, And not only that, after the child was born, he permitted his first wife, Sarah, to abuse that slave because she was jealous that she had been able to have a child with her husband. So he has this son, Ishmael, and says that's the son of the promise, but turned out he wasn't. You look at, is that righteousness? Is that a righteous man? Some of y'all are more righteous than that. I've done some stuff, but I've never done that. I've never let my wife get taken away by by some other guy because I'm afraid to say, no, that's my wife, leave her alone. And I don't even own any slaves, never mind having a child with one. And Abraham's our example? So you can see the, the questions here. And if it was by Abraham's works that he was justified, we might have to question God's righteousness, wouldn't we? And there are those that do that. God loves Abraham. And look at all this awful stuff he did. God can't be good. But Paul's going to draw out the important point here. He calls us to look at Genesis 15, 6, where it tells us how Abraham was made righteous or counted righteous. It says that Abraham believed God. 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the story of numbering the stars. When Abraham was lamenting that he wasn't going to have any children and it's been so long and God takes him outside and says, number the stars if you can, Abraham. That's how many children you're going to have. And it says, Abraham believed God. That's it. He believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith. Here's the important point Paul's making. The verdict of God came over Abraham's life when he believed not when he had done something. He believed that God was able to fulfill his promise. He trusted God and fully committed himself to the ways of God. And then he was counted righteous. Not because of anything he had done, and not because of anything that he would do later. This all happened through faith alone. So Paul is pointing out the Jews were wrong in their understanding of Abraham. There are some that want to go back and, and mine out what the Jews at this time believed about the Old Testament and try to then import that understanding to our understanding. Now that can be illuminating, but Paul makes very clear, y'all got it wrong. You've got this ethnocentric view of God and it's caused you to miss what the Bible actually says. Don't we do that sometimes? Amen. You read it through your own culture and so you miss all the stuff that doesn't line up with your own culture. They had misplaced pride as our pride often is. This is why John the Baptist would tell them in, in Luke 3, verse 8. He said, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. That would have been offensive, man. That would have been not politically correct for him to say that. He says, if you want to repent before God, let's see some good works out of your life to prove that you've repented. And they would have said, how dare you? I'm a child of Abraham. Don't you know who I am? He goes, I don't even want to hear that from you. God could turn that rock into a child of Abraham. So what makes you so special? And they said, well, I never. And they went on home, right? So Paul is making this point. Abraham was justified by faith, not works. Let's read verses 4 through 8. He's going to continue to explain. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You ever have a boss that treated your, your wages, your salary, as something he was doing nice for you? As a gift, right? But it's your due, right? I worked for you. And verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he quotes in verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul just quoted Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now he's going to break it down and show the Jewish Christians in Rome how it was maybe the right thing to imitate Abraham, but the thing they were trying to imitate was off. And he draws this out. It says, Abraham was justified when he believed. He didn't do anything. He just believed. And Paul says, if you work for something, that's wages. It is owed to you. When your boss tries to treat it like something he's doing nice for you, like with all due respect, I worked 40 hours this week. You owe that to me. That's, that's wages. And this is how some people, and these people here in this circumstance, were viewing salvation. I've done all the right things, therefore you owe this to me. But Paul's saying that's not what happened for Abraham. 
He says, Abraham believed and then received. That's a gift. That word for gift, as the ESV translates it, is the word charis. It means grace. It's, It's something that's given to you. This is what Abraham found. That was the question in, in verse 1, right? What shall the, we say was gained? The word there literally is found by Abraham. What did Abraham learn? And what can he teach us about salvation? That it's a gift. It's not something that you earn. It's not wages. It's grace. And he uses this term to be counted righteous. I want to break this down a little bit. The word counted in Greek is logizomai. It comes from the word logos or logos, which means word. And it was an accounting term. It was a bookkeeping term. Your translation might have the word credit there, that it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's important because if you were to log something in, this is where we get words like that from logizomai, to edit it in the log, you're going to add righteousness to the plus column for Abraham. That's a gift. It's, it's been given. In 2 Chronicles 9, verse 20, they use the same word in the Greek translation of the Hebrew when it says that in Solomon's day, it was so prosperous that silver was not counted as anything. Like silver was so common, like if you didn't have gold, you didn't really have anything because it was so prosperous at this time. But you can see how it's related to finances and accounting and bookkeeping. When you put your faith in Christ, righteousness is credited to your account. It is a gift to you. How excited were you to get that stimulus check? Amen. Woohoo! All right. That was a gift. And you think, what am I going to do with this now? It's the same kind of thing, except it's worth a whole lot more than a stimulus check. I'll tell you what. It appears in your account, your account, and you didn't do anything to get it. It's a gift. It's a credit. It's something that God has the, the ledger of heaven and he adds righteousness to your account. You can't earn it as wages. That was the whole point of chapter 1, 2, and 3, right? Well, I'd rather, I'd rather earn what I get. Okay, that's nice. But, you know, I think we all kind of showed last, last year. It's like, but if you're giving it away for free, I'm not going to say no, right? <laughs> you're, you're a fiscal conservative like me. It's like, I don't think you ought to be giving money away, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to stand in line and get mine, right? <laughs> It's the same thing with salvation. I want to work. I want to be able to work and and earn everything I get. And God goes, well, you can't. You can never work hard enough to get this, but I'll give it to you for free. That's wonderful, isn't it? This is the special blessing that that David is talking about here in verses 7 and 8. If you're taking notes, verses 7 and 8 are a quote from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, which is a wonderful psalm. I love it so much. I've read it a million times to comfort myself. It says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Here's another word we can look at here. For blessed or blessed is the Greek makarios. It's a translation of the Hebrew word esher. And they both mean the same thing. It's blessing, but we think of blessing in terms of material. I was blessed with money. I was blessed with health. I was blessed with... But look at how he's using this word. The one whose lawless deeds are forgiven. This is not saying that if you're forgiven, you're going to receive all kinds of financial and and physical blessings. This word for blessing specifically describes inner contentment. You could translate this, Oh, how happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. This is the same word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. 
Remember that? Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. This is what he's saying. Inner contentment, happiness. So the truly happy man is the one whose sins are forgiven, whose lawless deeds are covered, whose unrighteousness is not counted. And there it's using the same word from before, but it's saying it's not being counted. So not only is righteousness being added to your account, God is not counting all the unrighteous things that you did. That's a happy thing, isn't it? And I'll tell you, we hear that, and some of us, if you're more like me, it doesn't sit right with you right away. Because if you're somebody like me, you kind of like rules. And you kind of like competition. I'll be open with you. That is how my mind works. Is I want to be pitted against the, the best opponent and see how I stack up. Even if it means I'm going to lose, that's what I want to do. And I, this isn't something that I was, had some traumatic childhood or something. And this, is, this is just my personality. My thought is you're only as good as your last at bat. You know what, if, if, and this is a hard thing because, you know, I'm a preacher, I'm a worship leader. We have a great service. I'm walking on air and I'm feeling great and God is so good. And, you know, then the next week it just kind of all falls on its face and I'm no good and I'm never going to go anywhere. And God, what'd you use me for? It's such a fragile means of happiness to look at your own performance and your own accomplishment, your own righteousness. It's fragile because you're fragile. And you're not perfect. And, and there are those, even in business, even in sports, and, and yeah, they're, they're full of pride, and they even come across as arrogant. But I found the people that are the most loud in their arrogance are usually the people that are the most insecure and have the loosest hold on their own happiness. Amen. So they've got to make sure everybody else knows that they did what was right. Because if they believe it, maybe I can start believing it too. Isn't that how it goes? Amen. We've all sinned. So we cannot win that game, so to speak. I, I'm willing to take my chances and see how I do. It's like, you've already lost, bro. You were born into sin. And you're never going to be perfect. Well, what if I start right now? Okay, what about all that stuff back there? You need to have that covered and forgiven. You need all the things you've done to not count in the unrighteousness category. Imagine, though, if you could have that. Imagine if everything you've done, all the, the wicked things you've done, all these things, especially, especially men will do this. L ladies have, have, have learned, I guess, over the years that it's important to talk things through and get your girlfriends around you and, and pour, pour it all out and, you know, have a good cry. And yeah, that's all great. I don't get that so much, but I understand that that's how it works. Gentlemen have a tendency to hold on to stuff. And there's advantages to that. You know, when the chips are down, ladies, you don't want your man to be... You know, think about all the ways he's done it wrong. You just want him to get out there and get it done. Amen? However, this can be dangerous if you hold on to those sins that you've committed and all the things that you're ashamed of, all the things you did in your youth that nobody found out about, and you never want to bring it out. And everything looks so great around you and you're doing well, but nobody can understand why you can't just enjoy any of it. Because inside you've got this thing, this memory that you just can't let go of. And of course, this is not exclusive to men either. But what if you could have all that erased? What if you could know that God's not going to bring that up when you stand before him one day? What if you could know that that's not going to count? <laughs> you ever play basketball with one of those people that you're playing, you know, horse or something like that, and they shoot and they miss, and they go, ah, that one didn't count. You don't get to say it didn't count. We're playing a game here, man. This is how, how it goes. 
playing with a little kid, right? You know, you're going to let them get, take three shots for every time you take one, you know? Say, so, well, that doesn't, that doesn't fly with God. Oh, yes, it does. God can look at all the wicked things you've done and say, that doesn't count. I'm not going to put that down in your stats. Yeah, it's an error, but it's not going to go in. The only thing that goes in is righteousness. That's unshakable happiness. You can feel blessed and happy then. Why? Because it doesn't depend on you. You mess up, yeah, you feel bad, but that's not going to shake your joy because it's not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon Jesus Christ, the one who never sinned, who endured all the way through the cross and came out on the other side and ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's what your happiness and salvation depends upon. Isn't this important to know this? When people say God wants you to be happy, very often we go in a weird direction with that. We say, therefore, do whatever makes you happy. Well, no, that doesn't work because then you're going to start sinning and then you're really not going to be happy because you're going to stand before God one day. But your joy, your happiness, if it's grounded in what Christ has done for you and the fact that your sins are forgiven and it's all been blotted out and God's not going to remember it anymore, that's the kind of happiness God wants you to have. All right, how do I get it? How do I receive it? Through faith and repentance. If you keep reading in Psalm 32... David tells us, Psalm 32, verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. You might say, I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's repentance. You agree with God that what you've done is wrong. You probably already agree with God that what you did is wrong, right? Well, it's time to come to the Lord and acknowledge that. And, and you say, well, that seems so easy. Oh, is it though? Haven't you been afraid to pray before? Haven't you been knowing you're supposed to pray and heard God whispering in your ear and telling you he wants to speak to you and you do everything you can to keep yourself distracted because you know what he wants? He wants to talk about that thing that you're so ashamed of. If you are able to acknowledge that and have faith like Abraham that I believe God will forgive all this, that's all it takes. That's all that it takes. Abraham did not do a thing to earn his righteousness. God gave it to him. Same thing for you. You can't earn it. But if you come to God and say, here's all my unrighteousness, I'm so sorry. Can you forgive me? And you believe that God will forgive you and erase all that, then that's enough. Amen. And that will break your pride down because it requires humility. You know what word is very close to humility? Humiliation. They're related. And they think, oh, yes, I'm, I'm a very humble person. Yeah, but are you willing to be humiliated before God? Down on your face with no argument. We sing that song, I need no other argument, no other plea. It breaks your pride down because you have to acknowledge that I am not good enough. I can't do enough. Nothing I ever do will be enough to save me. And you bring that before God and he'll save you. But that is why many people will avoid this. Because they're proud. They think they can do enough. Maybe it's an ethnic pride like these Jews had. It wasn't so much individual. It was, it was more that, well, we're descendant of Abraham. He was a great man. Hey, you might come from some great men too, great women. You might have a wonderful spiritual heritage. You might look back on heroes of the faith and you're, you're standing in their tradition. That's not enough doesn't matter if you were born in a country that acknowledges Jesus Christ. doesn't matter if you were born in a country that was a dictatorship and hates God. 
That doesn't give you any kind of leg up before the Lord. And we don't like that. <laughs> we want to have an advantage. We want to take every advantage we might have and try to leverage that with God. But you have to understand that's a fragile pride. Because what if it all falls apart? Then what? And it will fall apart. I guarantee you it will. God can break that down and replace it with a happiness that depends only on Christ himself. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to earn what I get. That's foolish. He's offering it to you freely. And if you try on your own, you're not going to get there. Well, let's read verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Well, here's the final question that might seem odd to you, perhaps in your culture, in our context. The final question is about circumcision because he's saying that God saves the circumcised and the uncircumcised equally. Back in chapter 3. And now we're looking at Abraham. And they say, wait a minute. Abraham received the sign of circumcision. Isn't that what saved him? The Jews were not accustomed to applying their scriptures to everybody. Only to themselves. Don't we do this sometimes? All those blessings, yeah, that's for me. Jeremiah 29, 11, that's for me. John 3, 16, that's for me. But the rest of y'all need all these curses that Ezekiel was talking about. <laughs> this is how they thought about themselves. And so they couldn't fathom. He's quoting David about blessed is the man, and he's applying that to uncircumcised Gentiles. This was scandalous. How dare you, Paul? But what he comes in and shows them is Abraham was circumcised, according to Genesis, at least 13 years after he had been justified. The order matters because it shows us that circumcision was not necessary for him to be saved. If he was saved that way, why do you think nobody else can be saved that way? He says this was a seal. It was the confirmation of what had already occurred in Genesis 15, 6. And that way, it's a lot like baptism. You're not saved through your baptism, but it is an outward declaration of what God's already done in your heart. And what's so great about this, Paul says, Therefore, Abraham is not just the father of the Jews, biologically, He's also the father spiritually of anybody who will be saved apart from being a Jew, one of God's chosen people. That's why we sing, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, right? And I am one of them, and so were you. Somebody wants me to continue. I'm not going to continue. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Paul is affirming here. Look what he says uh, in verse 12. Those who walk in the footsteps of the faith. Paul's affirming, like Jesus did in John 8, that walking in the footsteps of Abraham is a good thing. So y'all have the right idea of wanting to be like Abraham. But they were missing the most important step. They were reading back into his story their priorities. And we're guilty of that too, aren't we? 
We fall in that same trap. We focus on the seal, he says, out of resentment and pride. We focus on the things that are true of us and make those more important. And this can be any number of things. It can be your denomination. It can be the way that you dress. It can be certain doctrinal conclusions that you've come to. It can be ethnicity. That I, I, yeah, everybody can be saved, but we're just a little higher on God's list. He likes us a little better. It can be, it can be any number of things, from serious things to frivolous things. When you say that this is more important than the faith that you place in Jesus Christ. Anytime you ever said anything like, oh, that's great that you put your faith in Jesus, but here's, here, you know, here's volumes two through three. You've got you've to have these also. You've got to make sure you cut that hair. Uh, let's take a look at your movies. Which ones are you all? Oh, you can't have those in there, or you can't be saved. You know, it's not the same thing. Now, where are you from? Okay, you're from, you're from China. That's good, you know, but I mean, you know, you, you're not in the same place as us here in the United States, but God can still save you. You might want to renounce all of that Chinese pride that you've got there, though, because God doesn't love them like he loves us, you know. Let's, let's turn to Matthew chapter 20. See if this doesn't sound familiar to you. Matthew chapter 20. Anytime anybody has told you it's Jesus and, you're starting to fall into this. Even if you don't, well, I don't think you need to be saved to do that. This is what we say. I just don't see how, dot, 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 right? I don't see anybody calls himself a Christian could do this thing that I don't like very much. <laughs> Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius for a day, which is about a day's wages, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. He said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? He said, no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied, replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Don't we get like that sometimes? Hey, I worked all day. They worked one hour and we got paid the same amount. So this, this drug addict, this violent man, this awful person gets saved on his deathbed and he gets the same thing I get who went on mission trips and tithed and served in church and raised godly children. You're telling me that I'm no better off than him? Yes. Which tells you where your priorities ought to be, huh? Amen. We don't like that idea of our labor going unrewarded. But the most important thing is to serve the master, not to receive the reward. Amen. Isn't that true? Amen. 
You're going to stand before God and he's going to reward you. But the, the glory of heaven is not the rewards, but being with God apart from sin forever. Amen. <laughs> and for time's sake, I'm, I'm not going to go too far into this next point, but I want to make sure I, I emphasize that this does not mean that grace and faith are to the exclusion of good works, but they're the foundation of good works. James chapter 2, and I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but he'll come out and say, you think you're going to be saved without works? You've got another thing coming. And he quotes the same verse that Paul quotes and says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. He said that when he offered Isaac on the altar, that fulfilled what he did, and that you're saved by works and faith. Nobody gets confused. He says, wait a minute, is James contradicting Paul? No, he's not. What's he saying? He's saying... Well, he's making a different point. You ever know that situation? You make one point and you don't make the correlating opposite point and folks can only focus on what you didn't say. Amen. There are some folks, well, Paul says we're saved by faith so we can do whatever we want. And James comes in and says, yes, Abraham believed God, but that belief was followed by a lifetime of obedience. Amen. It was the seal of what he had done. And Paul's going to make that same point in chapter 6, 7, and 8. If you think, oh, hey, I'm saved by grace, therefore I can do whatever I want. Let sin abound. He goes, you're out of your mind. You need what James would call an active faith. That you've been counted righteous, but you want to you fulfill what the Lord has said through you. Amen. That's undeniable, but let's get back to what Paul is saying here. Even James acknowledges that faith was first and primary. He's saying that by the way you live your life, I can tell what kind of faith you had. But Paul is emphasizing here that your works are a seal of your salvation, but only as an expression of saving faith. I love the Lord so much. I'm going to obey him. Oh, you're saved by your obedience? No, you got it, you got it wrong. Well, that seems like splitting hairs. It's not. Because if you put works first, or you put works coterminous with faith, faith always gets pushed out the side. Works always ends up dominating. And, it, and we're right back where we started. Which is why we hammer salvation is by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? But then in verse 10, it immediately talks about the works that God has prepared beforehand. We'll come back to this later, but I didn't want anybody to get the wrong idea. This handles the licentious person that, oh, I'm saved by grace, therefore I can do whatever I want. It also handles, handles the lazy person. Oh, I've been saved, so I don't have to do anything now. True faith is an active faith. And there's no room for boasting. Ephesians 2, verse 9, that no man may boast, right? By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. No one has a leg up on anybody else in salvation. Nobody's getting a head start. It's not like a seated start where whoever, whoever start, did the time trial best gets to go first. No, no, no. Nobody has any advantage over anybody else. However many great works you do, you are saved the same way that the thief on the cross was. That doesn't seem fair. Well, if we're talking about fair, we're all going to hell, huh? <laughs> you need grace. Amen. Amen. This is what Paul has been showing us. In Abraham, justification is by faith, not works. Not even something like circumcision, which was important. It was a mark of the covenant. But this dismantles any kind of religious or ethnic pride we might have in our own status or our own works. I think of Christians in other cultures that have to, to share space with Islamic 
people or, or with Buddhists or Hindus. And if you were to start to get this pride in yourself, I don't even know if I want them to be saved. But let's bring it home now. Are there certain people that if they started filling up this place and getting saved, you might not like it very much? Oh, there are some churches. There's some, some, let's put it this way. There's some poor churches that would be really upset if some rich folks started showing up. Because you're threatening our identity. This is our community, don't you know? And we define ourselves by not liking you. And now you're here and we have to be nice to you. And people will do this. We're never, never going to come out and say, get out of here. We just kind of do that cold shoulder thing, right? Oh, nice to see you. And just kind of let them, no, just going to let them understand that they're not welcome here. Oh, you can do this with race. You can do this with country of origin. You can do this with political affiliation. There's all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. We know that God's technically going to save you, but this is for us. You've got this, this sectional pride that we have. God hates that. Amen. He hates that. And in fact, our pride is so tenacious. You know what? I'm not going to leave that point now. I want you to take some time and think here. What group of people would you be upset if they started coming here? Just think in your mind. What would you say if tomorrow somebody got saved and they started inviting all their transgender friends to church? Well, I have children. I don't know if I want them around them. Hmm. They need Jesus too. Well, they've got a long way to go. No, they don't. No longer than you do. Amen. Or you did. What would you say if, I don't know, let's say if a bunch of bikers rolled up. Like, real loud in here. And they're not making any attempt to dress up, put on their Sunday best. And they came and sat down. And they're, and they're not like, oh, I th- oh, he turns out to be really nice. No, they're rough around the edges. And they kind of smell funny. Would you be all right with that? I thought this was a nice church. Well, yeah, you can come back. But listen, you're really kind of bothering people by the way you smell. No. Well, th- well, yeah, they're going to get saved. And then they're going to change all that, right? Where's that in your Bible? Well, I don't like it. That doesn't really matter what you like. Isn't that true? Maybe there's some racial group. I don't know what some of y'all are thinking. Uh, what if we go, let, let's just let's put this out in the future. What if we go to war with some country down the line? Let's say we go to war with China or we go to war with some African country or some place where there's a very distinctive look that the person has. And then a Chinese American comes in here. How are you going to handle that? Well, we need, to, we need to support the country. Well, that person needs Jesus Christ too. Amen. Amen. Well, they've got a long way to go. No, they don't. This is what we think. We think, well, they've got to fix some stuff first. It's not going to get fixed until they get saved. Amen. And they're saved by grace through faith. Amen. And that person's going to come in here and God is willing to save them just the way they are. Oh, we love that song, Just As I Am Without One Plea. Yes. But what about somebody that actually comes just as they are? And then we can't immediately give them a list. All right, here's the stuff you've got to go fix before you're going to come back next time. No way. Well, listen, I, you know, I love... I love people, but you know, those, those Gen Z, they really just freak me out. Oh, this happens. You think this doesn't happen? You don't think there are churches that have generational pride? I, I was asked this week at the conference, how do we reach the millennials? How do we reach the next generation? Well, one place to start is to stop making fun of millennials. You stand up and you're going to talk every week about this generation is the worst generation the world's ever seen. Why don't any young people come to our church? <laughs> I could do the same thing. I could stand up and start talking about baby boomers and how y'all wrecked the country and all that. Well, why don't they come? Why won't they come? What's, what, it's, and you know what? It's more difficult to do it this way. 
It's more difficult to have a ministry that spans kinds of people. Whether that's racial, whether that's cultural, whether that's language barrier, any number of things. Just style sometimes. And churches have a tendency to gravitate like towards like. And you know what? As long as there's no bitterness behind that, it's not like you're in sin. But if somebody comes in who's not just like you, and you've got a problem with them, you've got to get that checked. And you know, let's bring it back personally. Our pride is sometimes so tenacious that there are people that would rather take their chances before God than bow the knee and say, God, I'm helpless and I need you. It's true. You all know that, don't you? I would rather stand before God and see how it goes. Can I tell you that as a minister of the gospel, God has already told you how it's going to go. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And he goes on to say, only those who were written in the Lamb's book of life were saved. So you want God to bring out all the books of all the things you've done and see how it stacks up? It's not going to be enough. But if you have allowed the Lord to count you righteous, to credit that to your account freely, to allow it to subvert your pride and force you to admit that you're not good enough, you can't work hard enough, that you're not an independent, autonomous person that don't need nobody. Only that account is going to matter before God. Not your works, which the Bible says they're like leaves that they dry up and they blow away in the wind. And you know what else? Let's, let's, that's heaven, but let's not talk about heaven for a minute. Your works are also insufficient to make you happy. Because it's a shifting foundation. Oh, I've done so good these last three weeks, and then now, now I failed. And now I'm depressed, and now I'm down in the dumps again. You define yourself by your job, but well, what happens when you lose your job? I would never lose my job. They need me too much. It happens every day. You define yourself by your family. What happens if one of your kids goes wild? They would never do that. That happens every day. I'm not saying you shouldn't love your kids or love your job. But you got to remember what's most important. You can't define yourself by your country. I love my country more than any of you. But what happens if everything falls apart? What happens if we get invaded? What happens if the economy crashes and the country fractures? Now what? You define yourself by your country. Now you don't have a country anymore. That happens all the time too. So what are you going to define yourself by? How are you going to gauge your happiness? By your football team? Oh, that happens. You know that. You know the guy, you know what? The tide wins, and then that week he's nice, and then they lose. Like, oh, man, it's going to be pain this week. Because he's going to show up, and he's going to be all grumpy with everybody. It happens. You've got to judge your happiness based on the Lord. Because God will give you joy. He'll redeem all those works you've done, and there's nothing left to haunt you from your past or your future or your right now. The only thing you've got waiting for you is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. You are helpless before God, but happy is the man whose sins are forgiven, as yours can be in Christ Jesus.